I'm Lisa Dale Miller, mental health clinician and author of a new textbook on Buddhist psychology called Effortless Mindfulness. You're about to hear part one of a wonderful dialogue I recently had with David Vago, PhD, on the clinical relevance of awakening. David is at the forefront of neuroscientific research on the neural mechanisms of various forms of meditation practice, including mindfulness meditation. So I hope you'll enjoy what turned out to be, for both David and I, an incredibly informative and enjoyable first part of our conversation on the clinical relevance of enlightenment. Hello, I'm Lisa Dale Miller, and I have with me today David Vago, PhD. He is an associate psychologist in the Functional Neuroimaging Laboratory at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and he's also instructor at the Harvard Medical School. We're having this conversation today because Dave and Jake Davis, who's a philosopher, wrote an opinion piece in Frontiers in Neuroscience last November called can enlightenment be traced to specific neural correlates, cognition, or behavior? No, and a qualified yes. I love that title. <laughs> After reading that piece um, and hearing an interview the two of them did, I decided that I really wanted to have a conversation with Dave about enlightenment and to do it from a psychological as well as a neuroscience perspective so that we could sort of tease out what we really mean here in practical terms. So thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Lisa, really. <laughs> um, thanks for uh, initiating this dialogue. Yeah. So I think we both agree that it might be good to evaluate some initial terms. Yeah, I think that's probably the heart of the matter, is trying to understand, uh, or at least come to some sort of uh, you know, common understanding for what we're talking about when we say the word enlightenment. Do you think enlightenment is a valuable psychological descriptor? It's part of our vernacular. We talk about it. Um, it has a specific connotation to it. Um, but it's always been a bit uh, esoteric. And I, I think if we're going to start being serious about studying meditation and the taking the mind uh, as the path for reducing suffering and for optimum health and well-being, then we really need to examine all constructs that come from that paradigm, um, from the Buddhist paradigm specifically of training the mind. The role that I have taken is to be a facilitator as um, a facilitator and a translator. That's my role. Um, to put things into more modern-day psychological, cognitive and neurobiological terms that we can all relate to and uh, investigate um, the process of taking the mind as the path um, in, a, in, a more, in a very rigorous way. So absolutely put all the terms on the table. If mindfulness is there, then why not put enlightenment right next to it and explore it in a rigorous way, and you know it's going to uh, it's going to instill a lot of um, questions in a lot of people. It's going to get people riled up from all disciplines, uh, <laughs> whether or not this is even feasible, um, or whether you know this is um, a viable 
um, construct to even in, attempt to investigate, given that it's completely removed from the soteriological context from which um, we're investigating meditation today in a contemporary setting. But at the same time, I, I think if we're going to talk about mindfulness, then we should be able to talk about enlightenment. They both have, okay. they're both part of this path. Look at the roots that they, in, in terms of how they were described, you know, from the, uh, the, the Abhidhamma um, and from all the different schools of Buddhism. And then um, we can attempt to uh, contextualize it in a new way, um, almost redefining the word that's relevant to the path of self-transformation in contemporary settings. That's pretty bold. Redefining. Okay. Well, let's try on another term. Do you think liberation is more clinically useful than enlightenment as a term? Enlightenment has, you know, is described in many ways. Um, from the Buddhist tradition, you know, bodhi or awakening really has been even more accurate than um, enlightenment in, in, in many of the contexts of practice, meditation practice. Um, I think awakening is probably one of the better terms out there. Uh, understanding uh, progress along the path. How are we supposed to understand what happens along the way? And what are the markers from cognitive, clinical, psychological, and neurobiological um, factors? What are all those factors that are arising along the path that you are on? And what's at the end of the tunnel? Um, what are we shooting for? And everything, you know, closer to the end of the path is probably more related to this idea of a construct of enlightenment. In the beginning, it's probably not very useful to think about it um, because it takes a lot of effort, it takes a lot of practice, a lot of work before you can even begin to experience some of the, the um, subjective states that are associated with enlightenment, liberation, or awakening. However, if we want to like recontextualize Mm -hmm. these terms, then we can do that and we can say, you know, what liberation may be. Just releasing that sort of um, uh, slavery to our thoughts and um, the attachment to the, to the constructs in which we feel that they define us, that distance that we can take from our own thoughts is a sense of release or, or separation or transcendence or even liberation. Um, so we can contextualize it that way, but we just have to be clear in how we contextualize it. Um, and then if we're, if we're going to be consistent, um, we just use that term in that consistent way. So we can say liberation could be um, a whole bunch of things, but one aspect of liberation could be just simply um, disidentifying with your own thoughts. So okay, so if I was to summarize and sort of operationalize what you just said. Yeah. What I might say is enlightenment is sort of an end game. Liberation seems process oriented. Mm -hmm. Awakening is a descriptor. I think we I'm in agreement with you. I like the term awakening because it's it includes the verb awake. So there can be many, many different ways in which wakefulness occurs. 
in a psyche. Yeah. Right. And I, in I, a body too, yeah. frankly. You know, we That's have right. to speak psychophysically here. The, the, the human system can experience awakening in many ways, some of which could be momentary, some of which could be more insight-oriented and could lead to more long-lasting trait changes in a system, yeah? So Absolutely. for instance, I, very I don't fair. need, cigarettes aren't doing for me what I thought they were doing. <laughs> I they just finding I just don't want them and then they leave. That's a, that's a trait change, that's not a state change. A state change is, Mm, I don't know. I'm not getting so much from this cigarette as I was getting before. I mean, this is a very base example, but yeah. there's a process of insight and awakening to something, to some truth, to some actuality, which could come under the term liberation. I'm not sure that comes under the term enlightenment, though. Um, right. So enlightenment is sometimes sometimes described to come from like nirvana, for example. You know, the, the term yeah. nirvana, at least, right? So, and nirvana is, some, is often described as extinction or extinguishing. The descriptions that are provided um, are also somewhat, um, uh, they're certainly enduring trait-like changes, but they can also have sort of um, um, a, a developmental track, like awakening, because awakening, like you were describing, can be momentary or could be long-lasting. There can be tastes of awakening yes. along your path. I think similarly, there can be moments of extinction um, or extinguishing. There can be elements of just attachment uh, or craving that can be extinguishing. Um, bad habits are extinguishing. Yes. And actually, extinction is a great description, or it's actually a mechanism by which there, uh, by which the, the Western medical model and scientific model has has accepted as being a, a, one of the most important mechanisms for change. So the idea of extinction in, in a learning and memory framework is that we can take you know old habits that are ingrained and deep and uh, enduring. Um, but not necessarily adaptive, and through uh, levels of momentary awakening, we can gain insight into those habits. So at some level, we can say, ah, we had an awakening. It was a momentary awakening. We say, I just realized that I want a cigarette every time I'm in front of my parents' house. Right. <laughs> Suddenly, that context becomes a momentary awakening because you're you're getting insight into your own habits of mind. So there's an awakening, and the extinction then comes in when we can say, "I will no longer um, do the behavior." We can we can separate the craving, the wanting, the desire of the mental process from the behavior of grabbing a cigarette and lighting it up and smoking it. And that's a critical process that a lot of people cannot do. Is yes. Separate the mental craving, attachment, wanting, needing from the behavior of doing, of doing the maladaptive or following through with that maladaptive thought. So that awakening or insight that comes in just from realizing that can then lead to something like extinction 
or, or momentary extinction, where you are then laying down new memories mm -hmm. on top of the old ones that, com that compete with the old ones and say, every time I'm in front of my parents' house and get that craving, that wanting, that needing a cigarette, I am going to take a step back and just calm, breathe, walk through it, do some other behavior, whatever it is that mm -hmm. you've learned to do to adapt with it, that's extinction. Yes. So if we want to say your little mini nirvana happens when you're in front of your parents' house and you mm -hmm. decide you need a cigarette but you don't take it, yes. there's your nirvana. You know? And so yes. we, can, we can at least contextualize uh, enlightenment in that way mm -hmm. and say you can have these mini awakenings uh, these mini levels, mini nirvana, <laughs> nirvanic experiences along your path of, of uh, mental training. Again, I'm just going to reiterate, we've already removed enlightenment from the soteriological context from which it originates. It's yes. no longer enlightenment as a Burmese monk may have had, um, you know, in the 10th century or something, you know what I mean? It's, or the 13th, 15th century, it doesn't matter when. That monk back then, enlightenment meant something. But for you today, the person who's practicing meditation in a very secular way, as a form of just systematic mental training, enlightenment can be much more meaningful in reducing the use of cigarettes. That, that's just one example. But yeah, I could see it being used in that way. In that description, you actually described the entire trajectory of the Buddhist teachings in terms of the path, the prescription for nirvana, coolness, quenching, extinction. It began, you know, the Buddha himself, the historical Buddha, prescribed literal extinction. Just don't entertain those thoughts. Don't entertain that activity. There was very much a model of we're going to give you a very set container here in which you will be able to purify the body and mind. And that is something that changed when the Mahayana showed up because the Mahayana wanted to create a path for lay practitioners. And so the the soteriological context for enlightenment changed. There are those, and I have heard this from other people. This is not something I've come up with myself. I've heard teachers say this. In the, when the Buddha was alive, supposedly, he would give a Dharma talk and people would spontaneously awaken. They mm. would just achieve enlightenment. Right. But 100, 200 years later, there was less of that spontaneous awakening listening to the teachings. Yeah. And the Bodhisattva path was created to be able to give people a vehicle to work the Eightfold Path through the Bodhisattvic path, through the idea that cultivating wisdom and compassion instead of hearing the teachings and spontaneously awakening. So right there, we've already got that beautiful shift in context. Yeah. And simultaneously at the same time, the Chan teachings, which eventually became Dzogchen, and Mahamudra, you know, this is, a, this is a going back to, no, actually, it doesn't take lifetimes. All you have to do is recognize the mind in its natural state. And so even in the Buddhist path, the whole idea of nirvana and what that means 
shifted over and over and over again. So we're right. we are no different. We're sort of doing something similar. Yeah. So exactly. And and some people would say that because the Buddha um, was around what was it, 750 BCE, mm-hmm. um, you know, he may have had a certain prescription or a certain teaching, but from Theravada, you know, prescriptions and teachings and writings uh, through, you know, the 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 my transmigration of Buddhism through uh, Thailand, Burma, Japan, China, Chan, Zen into Tibet and Vajrayana, there was a period of like 2,000 years. Absolutely. So that's a long time. It is. And things are going to change (laughs) and be uh, more appropriately contextualized for that time period, for the people that existed in that time. We may be in what what some people refer to as the fourth turning, uh, a contemporary interpretation of the Dharma goals. It's just manifesting in a way that's going to be secular. It doesn't have to involve spirituality. It doesn't have to involve any religious connotations. It's just mental training. Ooh. And I was just going to add, so it, when we just put it in that perspective, then we can bring these terms um, to, to light and, and just go back to sort of the historical interpretations and try to reintegrate them in ways that make sense. So we're not, so we're doing, we're, we're following the path in its natural sort of evolution in a responsible way. How can we cultivate it in a way that is going to be beneficial for, for, for all humans today? We can see the trajectory in the quotes from the actual sutras, I think. Yeah, exactly. That'd be, that'd be wonderful. And I, I think what we'll realize afterwards is how closely it relates to our own medical model of uh, uh, from the psychological point of view, um, and there's a you know so there's a a very 2500 year old prescription for this that that we can contextualize in in today's society and 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 make it appropriate for ourselves, and then given that structure, then we can also study it. So, so I think one of the things we might see with the quotes is there's certain things that are missing that don't get talked about in the medical model and the mindfulness world because they're difficult. <laughs> so, yes. so here we go. Here's just a smattering, okay? So from the Theravada suttas, this is the actual teachings of the historical Buddha as they were heard and then eventually written down a few hundred years later. So it was an oral tradition for a couple of hundred years. The first quote is from the Majjhima Nikaya, and this is a description of, I would say, what nirvana is. Greed, hatred, and delusion are the makers of measurement. Which is actually a very neurobiological thing to say, I think. In one whose heart is utterly pure, these are abandoned, cut off at the root, so that they are no longer subject to future arising. That unshakable deliverance of mind is empty of greed, hatred, and delusion. Right. I mean, it's. I think it's exceptionally um, appropriate for today's, you know, modern person. 
um, greed and hatred uh, could be one, two of the most important factors which are driving society and people apart, uh, putting up fences between each other. I mean, what's going on between Israel and, and Palestine, well, Absolutely. really Gaza, is, is partly due to greed and hatred. Um, when you go down to just the human level, if you remove greed and hatred, uh, you get the essence of a human being, which is inherently good. Um, they're just humans, and, and, and as human beings, we are social, and we work well together. So, so the social, the self-transcendence piece comes in here because in order to really progress along this path, it is completely necessary for you to realize that by removing these obstructions of greed and hatred, you, gain, you get closer to others. The complete cessation... Yes. It's a non-attachment to the self and the walls that we create um, because there is no self inherently that is able to say, this is mine, this is me, this is what I want, what I need, these are my thoughts, my feelings. This is, no, these are just things that arise naturally. To me, this is an aspect of the Buddhist teachings that doesn't really get spoken very much either in the psychological world or in the mindfulness world, that, that this going beyond self-identity, that a lot of mindfulness is actually a lot of selfing, it seems to me. And so this is a place where I feel that we might be able to make a contribution <laughs> in order to get people away from the idea that there's either something inherently wrong with the mind itself and also that meditation in and of itself is the only antidote because it can't be, it's not. Greed, hatred and delusion are so intrinsic to the entire system and the, the fact is the Buddhist teachings were two-thirds ethical conduct and one-third the teachings on mental training in whatever way that that showed up. In the Theravada, Nirvana itself was actually an element. It was an unconditioned element, separate from the conditioned elements that arise in mind. That's how they... And they actually called it the deathless. That was their term for it. So in the Samyutta Nikaya, when it comes to being able to achieve experience of the unconditioned element. It says, essential timelessness, the still point beyond the ceaseless movement of samsara, which is all of conditioned, thinking, externals, everything, internal, external. These five faculties of mind, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, when maintained in being and developed, merge in the deathless, reach to the deathless, and end in the deathless. So there's this, this picturing of the unconditioned element that the mind is able to actually experience through the practice of faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom into some fruition, some ending, some end experience which could be called coolness, quenching, cessation, extinction, any one of those things. And it is, yeah. for the Theravada, the extinction of the gripping 
aspect of samsara. It's a very nice map and prescription that's laid out, um, and but it's uh, contingent upon practice. You bet. Absolutely. Right? Practice of all kinds. That right. continual practice, yes. Exactly. Yes. Uh, on and off the cushion. You bet. And so I think in today's society, what we're still looking for is the quick fix. And so we even have the mindfulness quick fix. Um, <laughs> and that's okay. Um, that's okay because it gives you a taste. Yeah. Um, and it may be helpful. In, uh, I don't see it as inherently unhelpful. I, uh, I know that there are certainly some people that may experience uh, negative types of experiences when turning inwards, um, given certain predispositions. Um, yes. you know, and and the, the Buddhist teachings also, correct me if I'm wrong, also refer to uh, certain um, uh, types of people with uh, uh, a range of faculties. Absolutely. Uh, um, you know, when you ask the Dalai Lama, which we have multiple times, how long is the minimum amount, and people always want to know this. Of course. What's the minimum amount of time necessary to practice to achieve the benefits? And, you know, and certainly that's understandable given, given how fast-paced our world is. We want to have the quick fix. So, um, but the Dalai Lama would say, lifetime. In today's world, you can have some, what, what's, what's called like a mindfulness induction. <laughs> Yes, which is the way can. I describe it. Absolutely. Um, which is a temporary sort of orientation towards your thoughts and emotions. Yes. Uh, that is mindful in the sense that you are just cultivating a present, focused, non judgmental, non reactive form of attention towards your uh, uh, thoughts and emotions. And in that moment, you are being mindful, yes. you're having a taste of mindfulness. Uh, you, you know, you may not have a complete dissolution of hatred, greed, and delusion. There may not be elimination of your cravings and clingings and attachments. You may not even have compassion for the people who are even teaching you the method. But you are paying attention in the present moment, with not, not, not evaluating, and you're not being reactive. So that taste, mm-hmm. that taste may lead to more practice. We have to contextualize it in a way that there's multiple types of people who may get certain things out of certain dosages, um, but it's very unlikely that you are of the faculty in which the nirvanic state happens like that from your, uh, your, your quick practice with a great Rinpoche. People are not expected to do a lifetime of practice necessarily, but they do want to achieve some benefit from turning inwards. And so, as a clinician, you must see how people react. I, too, recognize that there are different kinds of psyches, and there are different kinds of physical systems. So, people come in with their specific set of parameters, and there are many patients for whom sitting and doing 30 minutes of any kind of meditation practice would be contraindicated right off the bat. Most people are so used to having the tyranny of this narrative running all the time. They Mm -hmm. have no quietness. But quietness can be achieved by simply orienting to the room. 
and resting in what's actually around you. And that's an intervention that no one will ever become psychotic from. So I feel it's very important, especially for clinicians at this point, to have a palette, to have a, a set of interventions that they can offer that is not one size fits all. The, the meditation practices are something that can be given later on when a person is actually ready. And the truth is, and my friend Jose Calderon will absolutely agree with me, I mean, he spends his life in inpatient units as a psychiatrist. He and I are on the same page. We would much rather deliver mindful movement like Qigong, something like this, to people who are in distress any day of the week. Yep, yep. Then uh, Bessel van der Kolk would also agree, who is also a very big trauma specialist. He deals with traumatic patients all the time. Absolutely. And they have a very difficult time yes. sitting with their own thoughts. But when they do something like yoga, Wonderful. it is transformative for them. Yeah. It's the Even movement practice is very helpful for them. Now I'm going to switch over. I'm going to switch from the Theravada into um, actually something that is the Thai forest tradition, but is very... Um, Vajrayana slash Dzogchen related in terms of how they imagine nirvana. It's a completely different idea of mind, really. It's the extinction is almost beside the point in a way for these for these. So shall I read a couple of these quotes? Sure. This is from Ajahn Chah, who actually was a, a relatively modern day, last century uh, Thai, very, very well-known Thai teacher in the Thai forest tradition. So he said, I think you'll appreciate this quote, actually. About this mind, in truth, there is nothing wrong with it. It is intrinsically pure. Within itself, it's already peaceful. The untrained mind is stupid. Sense impressions come and trick it into happiness suffering, gladness, and sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of those things. Really, this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. Mm. Yeah, so this is interesting you, you bring this up because I've heard, so some people describe so if we if we if we loop it back to this idea of enlightenment and mm -hmm. you know maybe stages of awakening, some people, the Buddhist, some Buddhists describe as the nature of mind being sort of uh, the center of an onion, and uh, the path helps you remove all the um, uh, obs uh, everything that obscures the center, mm -hmm. which is the pure nature of mind. According to the Mahayana Sutras. The Buddha was supposed to have gone and given some private teachings to individuals who were of um, the capacity, higher capacity. They could hear the Buddhist teachings in a more, um, I'd say, challenging way. And so supposedly the Buddha, the actual historical Buddha, gave these teachings on Vulture Peak. He gave the teachings to Arhats. These are people who are supposedly have already achieved enlightenment. They have achieved recognition of the unconditioned element and they have conquered the ten fetters and yet they are hearing from the Buddha and from Subhuti a teaching 
that is even further enlightenment. And these are the teachings on emptiness as they were not distilled in the Theravada teachings. And so the Buddha asked Subhuti to clarify how a bodhisattva, how any of these arhats, goes forth and experiences perfect wisdom. And so Subhuti says, Since I neither find nor apprehend nor see a Dharma bodhisattva, nor a perfect wisdom, what bodhisattva shall I instruct in what perfect wisdom? And yet, if when this is pointed out, a bodhisattva does not despair or despond, if he does not turn away, is not terrified or frightened, it is just this bodhisattva, this great being, who should be instructed in perfect wisdom. And so there's this, this sense that emptiness, that, that ultimate nature, which is completely devoid of any self-identity, meaning self-cherishing, it doesn't mean you lose your sense of self. You can't, you can't, you have a minimal self. You will always know that you are a body sitting in a chair, that you're Dave yeah. sitting in a chair. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the identification of you as anything other than what you are, which is a basic human being. And you were actually speaking about this in terms of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Yeah. There's that inherent lack of recognition of the nature of who they truly are. Just human beings. Yeah. And from that point of view, they are empty of any inherent self-existence as I am this, you are that, we are not the same. It's At that level, it's devoid. And that is emptiness. That's the transparent nature. And to me, that's something we can deliver in a psychotherapy room very easily. When a person is so over-identified with the narrative of who they think they are, that causes them to suffer. And that narrative is ultimately completely false. There's nothing true about that narrative. If we go back to sort of the trajectory or the developmental trajectory of, of this path, um, once we can distance ourselves from these um, identifications in, across the board. That, that, that is a very clear developmental marker um, for progress, um, for, um, for recognizing this in, uh, uh, state of emptiness um, that's blissful and um, enlightened in the sense that it has more light. It has, it's, it's showing you very clear, in a clear way, yes. uh, how things truly are. Um, yes. The clarity is the wisdom yes. that you get with the mindfulness. The mindfulness may help you know bring your attention in a very sort of non-judgmental present moment way. But um, you know when John Kabat-Zinn used described mindfulness as a way of paying attention in a particular way, mm -hmm. he never really outlined that particular way. No. Uh, although he intended, of course, the particular way to be the entire Dharma. Um, but there's a particular we're, we're way that... We're not going to go there, right? We're, we're not going there. Right. You don't have to go there. But, but the idea, though, is that there are other mental factors that will arise through this path yes. that come with mindfulness, with just the attention and awareness. There's the wisdom. There's the ability to clearly comprehend, the sampajanya. You know, so the ability to have complete awareness or meta-awareness of where your mind is at any moment. 
So it's not just to know that, or not just to, to rest your mind in the present sensory experience, right. but to know where your mind is. Yes, you have to have insight. As scientists, we have to be able to identify those markers and say, look, here's the trajectory. Some philosophers are, um, are, are more uh, recently against relying on just neuroscience to provide the markers of this path because of the, the, the inherent problem, problems that neuroscience has in general. Um, especially when it comes to identifying substrates of conscious awareness. We don't even know what consciousness is. I'm sorry. Exactly. I mean, exactly. really. <laughs> right. So, and I admit that that's a problem. But I, don't, I can't say that, well, we just throw out the tool altogether and say, well, f forget neuroscience then. Let's find something else. No, I, I just think it's, it offers a piece of the puzzle. Yes. Um, it's not the complete picture. And every yes. study that we get, every little bit of data that we get, is another piece of this larger puzzle, a large piece of the blueprint. Uh, out of the map. Yeah. And so we can put it all together from the anthropological, from the philosophical, from the cognitive, from the neuroscientific, and eventually we'll have a nice full map in which we can um, better understand these states of development that happen along the path. What we're doing is we're translating the Buddhist, the Dharma, into more cognitive and neuropsychological terms yes. that we can understand in today's context uh, and we, we can't just take some of those terms and eliminate others. Enlightenment is part of the, of, the, of the path. Let's contextualize it in today's society and today's secular practice of, of, of mindfulness and the Buddhist teachings uh, or just systematic form of mental training, which is devoid of Buddhist religious uh, anything, <laughs> and uh, explore it from multiple disciplines in in a responsible way so we so we, that we can it can be incorporated into everyday life for every one of us whether you're Christian Buddhist Muslim doesn't matter and uh, it's just a way of help helping train your mind there was a study recently that came out and I don't want to over identify with it but it uh, it said that people um, the, the gist was that people were having a much harder would rather be shocked Oh, I saw that study. Would rather be shocked than sit you know, with their some thoughts. Some sort of electrodermal stimulation than yes. just sit in a room quietly with their own thoughts. But when I read that study, Dave, I have to tell you, I had a very immediate response to it. Because for most people, sitting with their thoughts doesn't mean musing on the great um, mysteries of life. It's <laughs> sitting with their negative, anxious, horrible narrative. Nobody right. wants to do that. So right. when I heard about this study, I immediately said, well, no clinician created that study because we would all say, no, nobody's going to want to do that. And they'd much rather have some kind of physical stimulus because, in fact, experiential focus feels better than sitting with your thoughts. If they taught them how to orient first, how to just let their eyes rest on objects in the room and let her literally just be with the room itself. They would have chosen to do that instead of shock themselves. It really just speaks to the problem in, in, in inherently in a lot of our minds is that we're scared to, to go within. But yes. um, there is yes. something very unique about the revolution of turning inward.
Me we're too. here to sort of be translators uh, and uh, clinicians yes. for for everyone else who is trying to, is interested in what this mindful revolution really is. And um, if you have you know questions about whether enlightenment is real and possible for people, then you know this is a helpful beginning point for people. So I hope that it's beneficial. Thank you so so much. Thank you. <laughs> Copyright. 2014, Lisa Dale Miller and David Vago. All rights reserved.